When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. I basically stick this little syringe thing that injects a monitor into my belly fat, and then it will show my glucose levels in real time on my Apple Watch. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger, and I'm here with producer Jason DeFilippo. You show up a little bit more on this show. For once. Just a little bit. Yeah, well, we are here and there. We are hanging out in person in San Francisco. On this episode, we'll be talking with my new friend and your old friend, Kevin Rose. Yes, longtime friend. He, man, what a, he's done a lot of stuff. Found a dig. He worked for Google Ventures for a while. Pounce, oink. Venture capital superstar. Kind of one of those Silicon Valley royalty guys, the Technorati that you have heard about forever. Serial entrepreneur. Oh, yeah, all that. Now he's into meditation. Yeah, well, who isn't, right? But his app is a little different. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. Today, we're going to showcase some insights from somebody who's been around vetting ideas for a really long time. We get a little bit business heavy in the beginning, but I think this stuff applies to people looking for, quote unquote, what to do with themselves, ideas they're vetting, how to know if your idea is any good, how to know what path to take, whether you should stay in school or not. There's a lot of stuff that we talk about with Kevin that I think is quite insightful from somebody who's solved the money problem and had several good ideas and several eh, not so good ideas and seen them all through to fruition or to failure. Can't all be winners. It can't all be winners, but this show is definitely a winner. Don't forget we have a worksheet for today's episode so you can make sure you solidify your understanding of the key takeaways from Kevin Rose. That link is in the show notes at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. Now let's hear from Kevin Rose. You started podcasting in what, like 2003 or something? Uh, yeah, it would have been about 2004. Yeah, somewhere around there. We started The Art of Charm in 2006. We just kept going. You took a little break, yeah. decade long or so. But you had a few shows in there. Why did you start doing it back then? People ask, oh, why'd you start in 2006? Did you predict the rise of podcasting? The answer is no. Back then, there was no information. But back in 2003, there was even less than nothing the odds of somebody watching it were low. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those things where Apple had announced support for it, which was huge. Like just the fact that they would support podcasting and allow you to syndicate that stuff. And then we were doing traditional television. So we were working at Tech TV. We're talking about an organization of 500 plus people to run a station. And we realized that this model is gonna go away, or at least the idea that you could just turn on a camera and have two guys sitting on a couch uh, having a conversation was zero to the cost of the cameras in our time. And we did that and people started to watch. I mean, we started to get pick up and ended up being 
a couple hundred thousand people were watching, which back then those numbers were pretty That's impressive. still really good to do a stream video and have a couple hundred thousand people watch is huge. Yeah, and, and we had started bringing on uh, sponsors back then, uh, Squarespace. We were the first show that they actually advertised with, which was crazy. So Squarespace has been OG flooding the podcast market since 2003. A long time, yeah. Anthony, the CEO over there, he was a super nice guy and just believed in us and started backing us. And then GoDaddy did and some of these other brands you know, it paid the bills and it made it so that we could just do more of this. Back then, the problem was that syndicating video was extremely expensive. Bandwidth was really pricey. So we were spending $20,000 plus a month on video bandwidth, which is crazy. Wow. And that's not even like 1080p no, resolution is, yeah. video. We had Cashfly we were using back then to like syndicate all of our bandwidth and we started a whole network around it called Revision 3. And so that was a whole podcast network. And we had like six or seven different shows on there. And I remember a long time ago, Axe had done a sponsorship for Dignation. Right. And I created all the content for Axe's website that you guys were doing. It was all this like dating related content and all this like lifestyle related stuff. So that was my first introduction to you guys was I was like, so these guys are going to get paid for just talking about the fact that I spent like a month making this. <laughs> I'm in the wrong business. Well, I appreciate you doing that. Yeah. You guys did like a 30 second bump and I'm like, that's it. I spent so much time on this. And they're like, yeah, this cost us like a ton of money for them to promote. And I just went like, okay, I got to get on that side of this equation. Yeah. They, I remember they came to us. They're like, will you use Axe body spray? And I'm like, do I have to like use it at home? Like, or can, <laughs> can I just I like use it spray once? it on the show? And so it was fun though. Smell-o-vision cameras. And you guys did a lot of big live shows back then podcasting nowadays, you don't see a lot of people doing live shows. It's starting to come back, but yeah. what was the biggest live show you did? We did one in London for future web apps that was probably 4,500 people or something like that. Not bad. It was nice. pretty decent little showing. Is it true that you dropped out of college? Is that accurate That's to say? Right. Okay. So you dropped out of college, but you're not the type of person that just goes, eh, this isn't for me. I'm going to bounce. I'm just going to stumble into something. You must have seen something that was more attractive than what you were doing in school. Yeah, I think that it was pretty straightforward. It was 1999-ish. The whole internet.com boom was happening. I was reading about all of these companies going public and all the crazy stuff going on in Silicon Valley. I was like, why am I wasting my time in school? Like, I need to be up there. I need to be working in this industry. And so I just thought, well, I'll see what I can do and go on monster.com and apply for some jobs. And <laughs> if I land anything, at least I'll be up there. I landed a job and moved up here and ended up working in tech and watching all that explode in my face. And my company that I was working at next office was selling office furniture online. <laughs> for other startups to buy. Yeah, exactly. So they went out of business and that's how <laughs> I ended up at Tech TV from there. It was really just realizing that when you're sitting there and you're studying computer science, you're just bored out of your mind because your instructors are teaching you really old, antiquated, cobalt, cobalt stuff like that. It's like, it was so clear to me that I could either just learn this on my own or go work in the industry and learn it along the way. So I chose to duck out. I figured I could always go back to school if I needed to. Yeah, you can. I wonder though, what would you tell somebody who's in school right now who's like, I'm going to drop out because cryptocurrency. How do you know if what you're doing is going to take you in a useful direction or if you're just being sort of a trend hopper and you're sacrificing long-term success for sort of short-term gratification? You know, this is a really tough question because it really varies from person to person and idea to idea. 
I meet a lot of entrepreneurs because part of what I do during my day job is to invest in technologists and people that are starting new companies. One of the things that I think is really important is you have that kind of gut feeling of if I had to close my eyes five, 10 years from now, this is going to be an order of magnitude or larger project that I could get involved with today. It has to be driving you so hard that you're willing to give up that other thing, or you're willing to set that aside for a while. And so you really shouldn't be looking for validation from someone else. That's when I get worried when someone comes to me and they say like, oh, I kind of think I should do this. Like, what do you think looking for that external validation from someone before they go and start something? Those are the founders that I really don't want to back because they don't have that kind of internal connection to their project and idea that says they must do this. I find that the best ideas often sound extremely crazy to almost everyone, myself included, the investors included, but not to the founder. And so if you think about like some of the big projects that we've seen, whether it be, you know, a cryptocurrency like a Bitcoin or Tesla or whatever it may be, if you go back to when they first started, everyone thought they were just nuts. I mean, these ideas were just like, they're never going to work. But that's the kind of founder and the kind of person that I want to be able to back is someone that is so bought in and so sold on their own idea. And granted, like you can be drinking your own Kool-Aid and it could blow up, but at least you have that conviction to not only launch the project, but stick with it over time. Because like as a founder and someone that's starting something new, it's not going to be zero to the cover of Forbes magazine. Like that's not the way the path of an entrepreneur goes. Tell me about it. It's just still like, waiting on that cover, guys. Yeah, it's from launch to like a bunch of like loops and squiggly lines, like all the way up to success. Yeah. And so if you are kind of somewhat bought in on your idea, but you're not totally sold on what you want to go build in your vision, when you start hitting those loops and those curves and those twists, you're going to be like, ah, oh, this isn't working. I'm out, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to forge forward and push through those big hurdles that you run into. And so I guess what I'm really trying to find when I'm looking for a founder is someone that has that switch that has gone off in their brain saying that like, this is what I'm going to go build no matter what. Does the idea have to be big? I got a video in my email inbox yesterday from a guy who's like, I left school, I'm 18, and here's a video about why I did it. Really don't want to watch this, but I'm going to watch this because maybe this person has a really great idea or maybe I can be like, this is a terrible idea, you should not do this. I watched the video, it was a lot of rambling about how he's gonna change the world, and I was like kind of waiting for the idea. No idea at all. And I wrote back, this is a terrible move. You should go back to school, figure out what you wanna do. I realize you have a lot of energy. There are ways to channel this inside something that's gonna give you long-term success. I'm positive it fell on deaf ears. When I get emails in my inbox from a lot of folks, they ask me, should I be in school right now, or should I try to get a job working in the industry? I'm a fan of getting a job working in an industry. I'm also a fan of education, if you don't know what else you might wanna do. Because it's really easy to go work at Chipotle, no offense to somebody working at Chipotle, but it's really easy to go there and then just not do anything and wait for inspiration to strike you. There's nothing wrong with working at a place like that if you're working towards something else or if that's where you decided you're happy. And I think a lot of people who just don't wanna be in school, they think, should I just do something else instead? And I don't know, what do you think about that? Your leap from school was a good move, but you at some level have to realize that a certain percentage of people who leave school, they're not doing it for the right reasons. So the founders that you back are convicted about a specific idea. What if you're just convinced that school isn't for you? Where do you stand on something like that? What can someone do if they know school isn't for them, but they don't have a killer startup idea in a technology 
Well, it's hard when you don't know exactly what your idea is going to be. I I would want to do a little exercise with that person where you list out your ideal career and then your backup career. So you have like kind of both out there because most likely you're not going to stick with that first initial ideal career. And then ask yourself, like, what are the requirements for those jobs? Like, does that actually require a formal education and a degree? Because, you know, I'm not going to go practice medicine unless I finish school. I thank you for that. (laughs) So when I was looking at that kind of equation, I I figured, well, it's computer science, right? And if I'm going to be working in tech and IT, number one is I want to be a network administrator. And I know I want to go and help people configure their networks. And like that is largely certification driven. So for me, I was like, okay, I can just go out and get these certifications and I'll be a okay. I'll be able to make that 75 to $100,000 a year over time. That's great. So that I checked that box. Now, if I was doing computer science, like, yes, I can teach myself that and then go and have a profession writing code. So those are two areas where I didn't need that formal education or I could go and be self-taught. That doesn't apply to everyone. So I'd really come down to what are their interests and do they need to have that schooling? And I'm a big fan of going out and trying things, especially when you're young. You can always go back to school. You know, failure teaches you so much. Out of all the startups I've done, which has been, you know, probably a half dozen or more, two of them have had successful exits. The rest have all failed. And so you always learn something. There's so much to learn there from those failures. I used to get really depressed and think like, oh, failure is, it's so embarrassing. Yeah, like, sure. Failure is really just admitting that you've learned something. I went and tried something. It didn't work out. And now I've learned something and I'm going to take that forward into the next thing that I attempt. And oftentimes you don't obviously make the same mistake twice. So your companies, the way you manage people, all that improves over time. Were you surprised by any of your failures as well by your successes? Or was it kind of like, okay, looking back, we're clearly not going to work at all. I guess I'm curious because when I look at anybody's idea and find out it hasn't worked, usually I'm like, why would this have ever worked? But then you look at someone's successful ideas and you go, why would this work (laughs) at all? So it's equally mystifying for me when I look at businesses just as ideas. The ones that are winners are not necessarily clear. If you zoom out far enough, of course we want an online bank. Of course PayPal was gonna be a successful company. But then you think, we need online garage sales. But eBay is a huge success, and that's basically what it is. Right. What I wonder is, when you look at your own track record, are you thinking, like, I cannot believe Dignation was huge? Or are you thinking, I can't believe Oink didn't work? Yeah, I mean, I think all those things. There's so many emotions to unpack wrapped up in each one of those ideas. I try to have a kind of internal thesis around an idea And back to that kind of close your eyes and imagine it five years from now. And I want to be able to think to myself, Oink is a great example. Probably one person listening to your podcast knows what Oink was. (laughs) So Oink was essentially a way, if you've used Yelp or if you used Foursquare of any of these services, gosh, like 10 plus years ago, I launched an app that allowed you to go inside of a location. So any restaurant, any place, like an amusement park, whatever it may be, and rate and rank the individual objects inside of that location. Oh, wow. So if you showed up at a restaurant, you would instantly know what the most popular, most liked item was inside of that. If you went to a theme park, you would know the best ride inside of that. In my mind, I was thinking like, The issue and the problem to address was that we have this analysis paralysis when you walk into a place and you don't know what to choose or what's the best thing here, especially when you're going into a new place for the first time. I wondered if people would help apply the wisdom of crowds and rank and rate those things inside of those establishments. 
it really didn't work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it worked in that there was a very small, dedicated, hardcore group of people, myself included, that really enjoyed doing that. You know, 10, 20,000 people. It wasn't hundreds of thousands or millions yeah. of people. You try an idea like that, you see if it has traction, and then you have to be ready to kill it off and say, this isn't working. We've tried all of the features that we wanted to try that we thought were going to work. Let's kill it off and move on to something else. Was this a skill you had to learn at actually saying, okay, divorce my emotions from this. This isn't working. And I can't sit here and blame other people for that. Because I feel like me not having had to wrap up a company, my gut instinct, my emotional instinct, and I know I realize this isn't productive or mature or whatever, but I would be like, this can't be my fault. I've got to figure out who in the marketing department screwed this up or where someone else went wrong or no, we're going to keep doing it because I can't lose. I'd go through all of those phases. Absolutely. I think that it's really easy to try and place blame on other folks and other individuals. But ultimately, as the creator of a project or founder of a project, you're the one that's making these hires. So it all flows back up to the top. Yeah. I would spend a ton of time, especially going forward with new companies, on really properly vetting people and finding the right people for those roles. I think that early on in my career, when we were trying to hire out and fill positions, we called it just like throwing warm bodies at a problem. Like you would just like get in resumes and be like, okay, you seem to check the boxes here. I think I can micromanage you enough so that you will perform. And that's really not the way you should go about it. One of the things I learned when I joined Google was just how much time and effort went into their hiring process and how careful they were about allowing new people in the door. But when they did, when you passed all of those hurdles and we hired someone inside of Google, they gave you the keys to the castle. So they let you really run and break things and go and execute. There was a lot of trust once you had already gotten in the door, but a lot of skepticism leading up to that. The Google hiring process, some of the questions and things that they would ask sure. were just ridiculous, but it was because they really wanted to properly vet folks and really hire the right people. We would leave roles open for 12 months at a time, rather find the right person for a role than hire the wrong person. You're listening to The Art of Charm with Jordan Harbinger and today's guest, Kevin Rose. We'll get right back to the show after these messages. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates, all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. 
Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all gonna give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Thank you for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. And now back to Jordan and Kevin Rose. Do you think you're better at spotting trends right now, given your current position? Or do you think you're just better at spotting people who can accomplish things? I would say it requires kind of 50-50. For me, I have to fall in love with the idea. Obviously, that's first and foremost. An entrepreneur will send over what they call it like a deck where it's their PDF with 12 different slides in there showing what they want to go and build. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm hooked on that idea or that concept, then I want to go meet the founders for coffee. And then the second hurdle is sitting down with them and getting really excited about the team that they put together and believing that that's the team that can go and accomplish this big idea. I think the other thing that's really important to mention is there are a lot of really good ideas that I'm excited for the founders to go and build, but they're not venture-backed ideas. They're not these massive billion-dollar companies. They're more lifestyle businesses. Oftentimes, at least in the Bay Area and in the Valley, it's almost like if a founder comes to you with an idea that isn't a venture-backed idea, but a smaller business, they're looked down upon for not thinking big enough. Really, that's such a Western way of thinking. It just really bothers me. It's a very Silicon Valley way of thinking. Yeah, because there's so many great little businesses. And I think that we, as a society, I really wish that we would celebrate the thoughtfulness and thoroughness of like someone getting really excited about something and not really how big that can eventually become. Like, I'll give you a great example. Last time I was in Tokyo, I went to this little coffee shop. This gentleman, probably in his late 70s, early 80s, wears a little tie and it probably seats like 10 people and you walk in and he ages these coffee beans. So he takes coffee beans and he ages them like wine. I didn't even know you could do that. Yeah, it's crazy. So okay. he has vintages from like this going back to the 70s. Sounds like moldy coffee beans. No. So 
the bacteria kind of like creates this really healthy environment for them. As long as you don't roast them, you keep them green uh, okay. and they will age. And then you fire them just before you're about to serve them. And then you consume them and it creates a really amazing, mellow, beautiful coffee. $80 coffee cup. No, no, actually it's, he just charges standard prices. And so even for seventies vintage coffee. Yeah. They're like, you know, I would say the equivalent of seven or $8 us for a cup of coffee like that. So it's a little bit on the higher it's side. It's like Jamaican blue mountain at Phil's. Yeah, exactly. But you go in there and you realize, that this gentleman just has a love for that craft and for what he's doing and is so proud. You can see it in the way he wipes down the countertops and like cleans every little crevice of every little thing that he touches. The pride in that lifestyle business is just so endearing, you know, when you watch something like that. And we just don't have that here in the States. There's no appreciation. We call them hobbies. We look down on people who try to make those their business. Exactly. When I see that happening from certain founders or entrepreneurs, it's just like, it's a shame we don't celebrate those people as well. Well, hey, look, I agree. I think creative pursuits are worthwhile and it's something I had to learn by doing it. Took me 10 years to realize this was a creative pursuit in the first place. I'll tell you, you're definitely right about the venture capital snobbery, if you will. I was at a party a long time ago. Jason had just started working with me. I was talking about, I just, oh, just hired someone to work with me on my show and my podcast, da, da, da. and the guy goes, oh, uh, well, how do you support yourself? And started talking about the business model of Art of Charm and things like that. And he said, yeah, you know, my company's venture-backed. And he was really trying to sort of like one-up, but like stomp me down. Right, right. And I remember a lot of people were really off-put by that, and I felt so belittled. And I remember just thinking, screw manners. And I said, so you took out a huge loan. That's what you're bragging about right now. And everyone was laughing and I was so mad. But I was like, oh, I just want to zing this guy, right? Because right. so what? You took out a big loan. So someone else owns your business now. I remember just thinking, what are you bragging about? Other people think your idea is good. Other people like this too, they download it. They're putting their time into it. There is a snobbery there. But at the end of the day, what you're saying is other people believe in your idea. So they gave you a big loan. I think there is an overemphasis placed on the amount of money you can borrow. And you see that even in the crypto world now with raising tens of millions of dollars for a project that can be run by five coders right? <laughs> in a basement. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a balance that you have to, to strike there. Like some of these companies raising so much money for no apparent reason, even I scratch my head at those things and stay away from them. But there's other businesses that truly yeah. do need the money well, of to really go and scale. A lot of these big ideas are very capital intensive. You talk about creating a production facility at Tesla or scaling out what Peloton is doing or what Fitbit did. These are some of the companies that we've kind of worked with in the past. And you need to have a lot of infrastructure in place to make those a reality. And so venture funding in those cases actually does make sense. It makes it possible instead of impossible. When you say that you look at founders to see if the founder is the person who's got the conviction for the idea and you look at the team to see if they can accomplish it, what are you looking for? Because a lot of founders think, oh, I just need a really good idea which you've sort of covered is not true. You just need an idea, but you also need the team. But how do you know if this is a team that can do it? It can't just be about enthusiasm because everybody that walks into your office is probably enthusiastic. Everybody on Shark Tank looks pretty convinced, but they're not necessarily capable. What are you evaluating? Well, I think that first and foremost is to make sure that the idea isn't a slight iteration of something that already exists today. There's a lot of founders that come out there and say, I have a better version of X, Y, or Z. I'm Uber for this, right. you know, Twitter for this. You know, so something that's truly a novel idea is kind of what I'm trying to find. And then 
when you sit down and talk about their vision, how kind of fully fleshed out is that? Is it something where it's just like this is an idea that came up in the shower or have they really spent a lot of time looking at the landscape as it exists today, who their potential competition is, and then who they're surrounding themselves with, like who is on their founding team? What is their background if it's a technology-based product, like and they're doing hardware, do they have a hardware background? So many founders that get into hardware think that I'm just going to create the next Apple Watch or whatever it may be, and they might have an engineering background from school, but they've never actually spent any time in China. So just making sure that they're really thinking about all of the different aspects of their business really evaluating that initial team. So oftentimes I'll meet, I would say it's a team of two or three by the time that I meet them, like a group has come together. And so I like to sit down with each of those folks and really assess out who they are and what they're trying to build. Now, when it comes down to the hardware side of things, what do you think about Kickstarter and all of these guys? Is that like a really viable place where people can test out these ideas before they go to look for funding? Or what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I've certainly seen a lot of Kickstarter projects go off and then become venture-backed businesses long term as they need to go out and scale. If it's something where they're manufacturing, like I back this amazing, like it's called like a heavy blanket on Kickstarter. I saw oh, that. One oh, the- it's amazing. <laughs> Is like, it? It looks so comfortable. It like calms you down. It weighs like 75 pounds or whatever. It's like having a hug on you all the time. And so you just wrap it around you and you just like, you get all like snuggly in it. And what is it called? The gravity blanket? Yeah, gravity blanket. What yeah. a great name too. Yeah. But I saw that ad and I thought, okay, that looks great, a heavy blanket. Right. I don't know why we're all attracted to that. I, I don't know. So something about like being swaddled as a little yeah. baby or something that it it's sounds amazing. Be. It sounds sweaty to me. Yeah. It sounds it really is. sweaty. But on a cold day, it's raining outside. You got your little cup of tea. It could be amazing. Yeah. People who just really always need a hug. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Obviously, you don't need to do like really deep due diligence on their technical team to create a, <laughs> yeah. to create a blanket. So I worry about some of these really tech-heavy projects and the founders that are putting them together because there's a big difference between going to engineering school, creating a prototype, and then actually taking that and having it manufactured. So I got to know the Nest founders really well and talking about how important it is to actually have, they call it like boots on the ground in China. When you're going to have something manufactured, have hundreds of thousands or millions of pieces produced, like you have to be there through the entire process in the QA process and everything all the way down to getting it packaged and shipped. And if you don't, like the quality, things can break, things can fall through the cracks and you don't want to ship something that's going to catch on fire. I worry about a lot of those, not in terms of producing hundreds of units, because that's pretty easy to do, but when they start really scaling up, making sure they have the right team in place. Yeah, because supply chains are hard, it uh-huh. turns out. Absolutely. That's why 99% of Kickstarters don't ship. Yeah. That's right. So it seems like if you're doing hardware, going straight to VC seems like I would never take anybody that hasn't actually tried to do it at some point on Kickstarter, because right. it's like... A, you can test your ideas to see if they work. And B, you can get that supply chain experience if you haven't had it because nobody ships on time. Right. And the first iteration is always not what you think it's going to be. Like I've got a Giro suitcase that was Kickstarter. That's the one with the charger built in and stuff? It's got a charger, but it's got the big giant wheels on it, which is the big thing. And it was started by a lawyer, Ken Hertz, and a couple guys. And one of the big selling points was, oh, we've got this thing engineered down to the nth degree and it's self-balancing. Of course, when it shows up, they're like, yeah, we kind of had to make some design changes. And if there's nothing in it, it falls right over. Yeah. So, you know, you have to take those kinds of things into into consideration. So it seems like if I was going to be investing in anybody or if I was somebody who had an idea, go to Kickstarter first and get those bugs worked out learn your supply chain chops and then go out in the real world and 
try and get VC on your next run. Yeah, I like these projects that are doing a few hundred units they're promising out, not in the tens of thousands. Like It's hard when you have a really cool idea, right? Because if you can sell 50,000 units, why not go and do it? But at the end of the day, it's like there's a big difference between shipping a couple hundred units and, you know, tens of thousands. Yeah, you see that a lot when people get overfunded. Right. They just implode. They're like, we can't make a million of these things. We haven't figured out how to make 20 of them. What problems cannot be solved with money in companies like that? Because I'm picturing people right now going, I'm just going to hire supply chain people with the money that you give me, Kevin. What are you talking about? There are hardware incubators that are out there now that work very closely with a lot of these manufacturers in China. And so I would have liked to see if they don't have experience at least paired up with one of those companies so that they are getting the right kind of advice and just really making the right connections there. So I think it has gotten easier. If you look at where we were five years ago and a lot of these hardware incubators didn't exist, a founder really had to make those connections on their own. And so they'd have to like either fly out to China and meet with various manufacturers and just kind of like hopefully place their trust in one of these. And the problem is that the big three to five manufacturers out there that do Apple products and all these other products, they require a minimum number of units to even talk to you. And those are in the hundreds of thousands. And so it's difficult because no as way. a new founder, like you're not going to yeah, really work with them. No way. That's intimidating as well. Absolutely. What sort of team dynamics and what sort of people, aside from just their pedigree, their chops, whatever, what sort of team dynamics are you looking for? Because right now there's a lot of companies out there that have great teams or that think they have a team that's ready for prime time. What are you looking for at Google Ventures and your VC funds with these particular people? What's the people element that you really think these are people that are going to do something magical? Yeah, it's making sure that the team doesn't have any major holes right away. You know, oftentimes I'll meet these founders that are really the product managers. So they have the idea, they know what they want to build, but they don't necessarily have the design chops or the technical co-founder to actually make that happen. So making sure that at least the team that you're going to fund and going to back is in place or is very close to being in place before you actually back them. You know, I'll meet an entrepreneur that says, I have this great idea. This is the plan. And these are the three people that are going to join me once I receive my funding. And so, you know, you go and meet with those folks as well and say, okay, well, you know, if we're going to put in a couple million dollars here. Yes, the, the plan is I'm going to leave my job and go join. And, you know, so it's just kind of like making sure that they don't have any blind spots and then they've really thought through who they're going to need for this initial version. Because you typically try to fund someone to a first V1.0 of their product so they can actually launch something or go have enough of a prototype ready so that they can go out and raise another round of funding. And so I, I'm kind of just making sure that they've thought that through properly. It sounds like a lot of responsibility. I don't know if I'd want that kind of responsibility for all that money. To go and start your own company? No, I mean, course, right I, now. I'm doing it right now. I just mean for other people. I consider myself a decent judge of character, yeah. but... I don't know about that. You hired me. That's true. See? It's already falling already apart up, right in front of you. Because you're going to write checks that are for companies that are not going to do well. Majority of them will fail. Right. And you just kind of have to accept that a lot of the money you give away, you could light it on fire right. and it would be equally well spent. That's right. And I think that's fine. I mean, that's the process that you go through is you back these founders and you want them to be empowered to take massive risk. And so you're not backing them to be conservative and go off and build just like a hobby. It's really like, 
especially in the venture capital game, is how can I build something that's going to change the world and affect, you know, tens of millions of people. And so a lot of them, most of them are going to fail. But every once in a while, you're going to have one that turns in to the next Google or whatever it may be. And those repay and make up the difference. Of course. Yeah. The standard sort of VC model. So what are you most excited about now being neck deep in tech trends all day and looking at things from the inside? Everybody's crazy about cryptocurrency and things like that. What are you seeing that you're excited about besides the new Roadster? The new Roadster does look awesome. Honestly, what I'm excited about and what I put a lot of focus into has been less on the idea side. I mean, don't get me wrong. I am really excited about cryptocurrency. Honestly, my big focus over the last kind of year plus, especially in working with founders, has been trying to help founders find a decent work-life balance and spend less time in the office and less time working on their companies. But when they do spend time focused working on their businesses to have that be more productive time. And so really encouraging founders to get off their phones, to have a real relationship with their significant others or really disconnect from technology. And so that's kind of been my focus in creating a meditation app. And I realized personally that having gone through all these businesses, like I just burnt myself out and I really got into a bad place and wasn't productive in doing so. And so how can I help these oftentimes very young entrepreneurs like not go down that same path of late nights, Red Bulls, pizza, and that when it all costs and really just encourage them to be thoughtful about how they treat their employees and how they treat themselves in their own bodies. How did you know you were getting burned out? Well, I think that there's the standard, I'm not sleeping as much, I have anxiety about my business, like that stuff creeps up on you. I think that when you're in your 20s and early 30s, it's really easy to power through a lot of that stuff. Oh, yeah. I just realized that my brain was starting to really get a lot more fragmented. I would find myself like having a tab open on an email that I didn't hit send on, even though I should have sent it like six hours ago. Oh, no. Or a hundred tabs open, realizing that distraction was really causing me to spread myself so thin in a bunch of different directions. And to get back into that mode or that mindset of doing that one task would take a penalty you pay. Switching costs. Switching costs, exactly. And so the second you allow yourself to be bombarded with all these different notifications, um, you know, you'll find that you're bouncing back and forth between all these different things and you're not really that productive. So how can we limit that? How can we really force people to use less tabs to really kind of silo the things that they're working on so they can be more productive and then applying that to their businesses so that they're rewarding quality of life outside of work and not just the work that they're doing. Looking back at your own burnout, what was the indicator that this was a long time coming? For me, it's really slow. It kind of builds over time. So there was no like one morning where I woke up and I was like, wow, I'm just feeling burnt out. It was kind of a little bit more anxiety and anxiousness around getting things done. I remember that when you're in a startup mode, you think that you're never going fast enough. And so there's this constant waking up and like, God, I need to get this done and we need to ship this product and this needs to be out on Friday. There's never any satisfaction that can take place at that point because you're always on to the next thing and looking towards that next release or the next bug fix or whatever you need to get out there. And so it was kind of like just reframing my expectations for and realizing that this is more a marathon than not so much that kind of like daily sprint and really taking the time to force myself 
to create these hard breaks in my day. And so once I could do that, I realized I was feeling a lot more at ease and a lot more comfortable. So if I could force myself to do, let's say, a breathing exercise halfway through my day or force myself to only check email during these two periods during the day in the morning and then in the afternoon and have that on my calendar and never go into email at any other time. I'll force myself to install an extension on my browser that only allows me to open four tabs. You're one of those guys, huh? Tons of tabs all the time. All of a sudden, I find myself 10 tabs deep on tech news, five tabs deep on CNN and other stuff that's going on with the world right now. Nothing's happening but checking those things. Just being a lot more thoughtful about how I splice those in to break up my day. And then all of a sudden, you realize that in taking those breaks, the anxiety comes down. You can just have a little bit more time to be thoughtful about how you're thinking through your problems so you're not so rushed. And life just gets a little bit easier at that point. And you created an app for this. The app is called Oak. It's available now. And it's on, is it for your phone only? Or is this something that you've got on your... Why do you have two wearables on? Oh, man, we could go deep on this. Yeah, so, what's, go, what's going on here, Mr. Disconnected? Yeah, so, well... <laughs> Each wrist is occupied right That's now. right. The Apple Watch with the LTE is on my left wrist. And I use it for a bunch of different stuff, like in terms of turning on my lights in my house on and off or unlocking my computer, Apple Pay, things like that. But the neat little hack that I have here is because it is connected to the internet, the number one thing you can do with the Apple Watch is turn off all notifications because those are just distractions. Those are the worst type of distractions because they buzz your wrist and you look down and you have a new text that comes in or whatever it may be. And so I turn everything off there and number one, your battery life just goes through the roof. So they quote these things that like having like one day battery life. If you turn all that stuff off, it's like two and a half days. It's magical. The nice thing about this is I can leave my phone at home now. So one of the main things that I'm sure probably everybody notices out there is you find yourself heads down in your phone all the time. I mean, I bump into people almost every day on the street because they're looking at their devices all the time. And so this allows me to say enough with the phone. I'm going to do a phone fast for a few hours. And if I go out to dinner with my wife or I go to meet an entrepreneur for coffee, I leave my phone back at home. In emergency, should my wife have a problem, she needs to get hold of me, she can call. And that will go through to my actual watch because there's LTE there. But because there is no full function, full featured apps on the watch, I'm not using it like a phone. I'm not using it to go and browse Instagram. I'm not using it. No tabs. No tabs. Zero zero tabs. Zero browser, right? That's what's so awesome about having this thing is as funny as it may sound, it's like even though this is a technology device, it enables me to use less technology in my life. We'll be right back with more from Kevin Rose after these brief messages. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. For a list of all of our amazing sponsors and discounts, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. Now, here's the conclusion of our interview with Kevin Rose. I had gone on this tirade about how I'm never going to get things like an iPad, which you just saw me use for the whole show, uh, and an Apple Watch. And he sent me the watch and I went, I don't even want to try it because I don't want more devices. Yeah. And he goes, I'm sending it to you anyway. Just check it out. 
you might like it. You're exactly right. Ironically, having this watch allows me to do far less BS because I don't have to have my phone with me all the time. So when I go on a walk where I usually read audiobooks, mm-hmm. I can read the book and I can write things down in a little notebook instead of writing them down in my phone because what happens is I write them down in my phone and I go, oh, I have three texts. 100%. Oh, Slack is going crazy. And then I go, crap, I just missed the last 20 minutes of this audiobook that I'm using That's to right. prep for the show because I was on Slack chatting. My whole system goes downhill. Now I've just got this thing, I can dictate a text, I can get directions, I can do the basic things that I usually wanna do when I'm out. Exactly. And I don't have to have my phone with me. So that it. it really is a funny counterintuitive thing that having a device like the Apple Watch lets you use the phone less. And I know a lot of people are just like, you guys are so device dependent, you have to have all those things, but there is a reality that you've got a young baby at home. You can't just be like, I'm gonna go away for the weekend with no point of contact. That's right. It's just unrealistic at this point. And if you own a business, you probably also can't do that. Right. So I know there's somebody out there chuckling to themselves about how we're tethered to these electronic devices. It's our reality in this particular space at this point in your life, especially. Yeah, I have a Fitbit on the right wrist and it's not a watch. It's the very thin one, so I don't look like I'm wearing two watches. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, it just looks like you're wearing a women's watch and an Apple watch. That's right, that's right. That's <laughs> so what I was going for. You're wearing your wife's watch, That's too. right. So this one actually is the only device that will work and do heart rate in a high temperature sauna. So I do these extreme high temperature saunas a few times a week, and this is to ensure that my heart rate doesn't go over. I do a lot of the body hacking stuff as well. So this is to make sure that my heart rate doesn't go over 125 or so, and then I know to get out of the sauna when it's that high. Now, why are you wearing it when you're not in a sauna? I just like to have all the analytics. I'm super geeky when it comes to all the body hacking stuff. Like I also, I don't have it in today, but I typically wear a continuous glucose monitor that's injected into my- Hang on, you wear something that is shunted into you oh, yeah, I, all the day? Oh yeah, I, I basically stick this little syringe thing that injects a monitor into my belly fat, and then it will show my glucose levels in real time on my Apple Watch on the main display. What? Yeah, so I can test out how different types of refined carbohydrates impact my glucose level, and then yeah. also how quickly I dispose of glucose, which is important. Yeah, it's like insulin resistance exactly. type of stuff. Yeah, I don't have diabetes or anything like that, but yeah. it is certainly like they've shown in terms of like longevity and cancers and things like that, you shouldn't have elevated glucose for long periods of time. One of the things that I had issues with a while ago was disposal of glucose out of my blood. That's commitment to actually have something that is in your body all the time. So is there a monitor in you right now? Not right now. Okay. No, but there will be in the next like 24 hours. And it just stays in your belly fat? For about a week until you have to change it, a week to two weeks. In the so it just the battery dies or something? No, it's there's this little adhesive thing that goes around the outside of the device. As you take more showers, it starts to peel off and then you have to swap it out. But it's under your skin. Yeah, so it injects a little tiny thin wire that you can't feel into the actual fat there. And then that senses changes in your blood sugar and then reports it back to the device, which transmits it back to the Apple iPhone and then to the Apple Watch. Where do you get this? So that one, you have to get a prescription from your I was going to say, this sounds like an actual medical device. Yeah, that is a medical device. It's called a Dexcom glucose monitor. You could talk to your doctor if you're curious about this stuff. I actually, Wired is calling me today to talk about it because there's a whole movement right now of people that do continuous glucose monitoring all the time. That is bananas, but it changes the way that you eat. Probably can't Absolutely. actually eat bananas anymore. Well, the, well, what's interesting is everyone is a little bit different. So depending on how you digest certain things, like a banana will impact my blood glucose a lot differently than it will yours. So huh. it's just like keeping your eye on what's going on and knowing what you can and can't eat. 
if you could keep that thing injected into you 24-7 for the rest of your life, would you do it? Well, I mean, there's rumors that Apple is working on getting this data via LED. And so that's the hope is that we'll eventually be able to get at your glucose levels with a non-invasive version of this. So we'll see if they can develop it. But yeah, I would I would absolutely do it. I think it's fascinating to see like if you go to bed with elevated glucose levels, you kind of lock in your glucose overnight, which is not good. No, that's it's the inflammation, a bunch of other things. And so it's just like monitoring all that stuff and knowing when you're doing bad habits, I think is important. You obviously have kind of an extreme personality. Eagle Scout, drop out of school, start a bunch of companies, injecting a wire into your belly to monitor glucose constantly. That obviously plays some role in your success as a founder, just diving in and then going to like the nth degree Absolutely. in a certain area. Do you think that's a requirement for a founder to have, or do you think that it's just a requirement or just a thing that some founders have? If you think of anyone that is really passionate about what they do, they tend to go all in and really care about every little minute detail. It's also important to be able to let that go and entrust other people to care about that for you just because you can't personally scale forever. But, you know, when I'm launching a new app, like I instrument every little facet of that app so I can understand what people are doing with it, where they're peeling off, why they're coming back, when they're coming back. That's how you can really help prune and tune the things that you create to make them more useful for a wider audience. And I think that when I meet a founder whether it's extreme aging of coffee beans or, you know, someone creating the next social app, it's like you want to look for that depth there and that curiosity about their one particular thing that they're into. Do you think everybody has that? Oh, absolutely. I think everyone can find that. And that's the beautiful thing about creating new projects is they don't have to be massive businesses. Like, I really love that about all aspects of life. Like for me, I'm getting into like beekeeping now. That's like Oh, my new... wife is a beekeeper. Are you serious? Yeah, we have bees. Well, we yeah. need to have a bee chat. Yeah, there's a picture of us. We went to go get a hive from her friend. We duct taped it shut, okay? This is a hive full of bees that right. are now being moved, okay? We put them in the back of our car and I'm like, I'm keeping the bee suit on because even though it's in the trunk of the car, if anything happens, we're gonna have a car full of bees. Right. Angry right. bees, okay? <laughs> You're driving around with this. We're driving around. If we see a cop, we're going to get pulled over. We're going to have to be like, officer, don't open the trunk. Right. Right. It's not going to work. So she says, look, we've seen a cop like three times in our whole time living here. We're not going to see any police. We saw like seven cops on the way home. You didn't get pulled over. No, but I'm thinking like, oh, look at the ground. Look at your phone. And I realized it doesn't matter. I'm wearing a hat that goes all the way around my head (laughs) and a big white suit, you know, with like elbow and knee pad kind of things built into it. And we're driving this car. We put this beehive in my brother-in-law's backyard, and then she set up a nest cam, speaking of nest, to view the entrance 24-7. Yeah, you said you were getting into beekeeping because you're finding new passions. and Yeah, you just find things. a passion and you go really deep on it. When you meet fellow geeks and entrepreneurs that are really into their businesses, they tend to be these people that obsess over the details and obsess over and just really geek out on it. I'm sure that's the case with everything that you do, and that's the trait that I look for. If I'm thinking I want to start a business or I don't want to do the job I'm doing right now, I have to find a passion where I'm so obsessed with it that it goes really deep and all-encompassing or maybe it's not the right idea. Exactly. Because I think a lot of folks think, "Uh uh-oh, I don't have passion about anything, so I'm in trouble. 
And other people might say, well, you know, you just have to be interested in it enough to run a business and then you can do other things with your life. It sounds like you really believe that you're going to find some idea that you're so into. Well, I mean, that's if you have that spirit of wanting to be an entrepreneur. I find that for me, like happiness is really, are you growing in who you are and what you're doing? And also, does your reality meet your plan in your head for who you are and what you want to be? And so I have a great example, a buddy of mine does customer service, doesn't make a ton of money, Mm -hmm. but makes enough to get by. He basically goes home, plays his Xbox, has a wonderful wife, and that matches his expectations for what he wants out of life. And he absolutely loves his job. He never wants to be a founder or an entrepreneur, but he enjoys helping people. I've met so many people that are like that. That's great. You don't necessarily have to be a founder or an entrepreneur or start something new. You can work for someone else and find something that you're passionate about. And that can be like your contribution. Well, everyone wants to be the lead singer. Nobody wants to be the backup guitarist guy who's like in the shadows. Keyboard player. The keyboard player. Podcast producer. Yeah, nobody wants to be the podcast (laughs) producer. But you have to find people that love doing that for anything. And they're equally important. And I think there's a lot of pressure for people right now, especially young males, maybe, especially all want to start some sort of insert tech buzzword, cryptocurrency app. You know, they all want to do that instead of working anywhere else. And I think for me, looking back right now, if I had to do it all over again, I would want to be someone's assistant for a long time, some high performer's assistant, because Mm -hmm. That's the best way to learn high-performing habits and things like that. And I think the best way to learn tech is to be right up against it. But I or think learn that you don't want to do or it. Or learn that you don't want to do it, exactly. Yeah. And I think that it's dangerous for a lot of people to really want to jump in and start something just because they want the spoils, the fruits of that, mm-hmm. instead of finding something that they can really geek out on that they actually enjoy. There's a lot of folks that I've run into, and it's a big red flag when I see it. And that's when they are obsessed with the amount of money they're going to make yeah. or something. So they're like, I'm doing this because it's going to make me a lot of money. Right. Lambos. And, right. Yeah. <laughs> Lambos. Yeah. Does anyone want a Lambo? No. I don't think anyone wants a Lambo. Nobody wants a Lambo. Wants a Lambo. It's the cliche goal of trading Bitcoin or something. <laughs> yeah, this is my Lambo shot. That's right. Please don't buy a Lambo. Yeah. Nobody buy a Lambo. The reality is, even if you're a little bit successful and you're not going to be happy, like if you turn out creating a business or a startup that makes a few hundred thousand dollars a year, you're going to want to bounce and leave it and bail on everything. You're not going to find any happiness there. The focus really should be about the love and passion for the idea first. And if the money comes, that's great. But it really should be about, are you happy and satisfied if this idea works, but you don't make a lot of money? I spent 22 years in tech thinking it was all about the money. And I was waiting for that big payday, waiting for that big payday. And then I was working for Jordan. No payday. Well, (laughs) I I was the tech guy. I was running all the tech, running the servers and all that. But at night, we would get on the phone and geek the hell out about podcasts and talk about microphones and all this stuff. It turns out, yeah, I make a lot less money in podcasting, but I am a thousand times happier. Yeah. Yeah. I traded the big payday for what I'm really passionate about now took 20 years. I would prefer that people do it a lot faster. Don't keep grabbing for that golden ring if you're miserable, because I was miserable in tech yeah. and in podcasting. I'm happy as a pig in you know you, what. It's, yeah. it's funny as I never told you this, but having known you for a really long time, I can certainly see it. I can see the change. I can see the difference. Because really? 100%, dude, when I see you send me photos of the different podcasts that you edit and you have those up on your wall. Mm-hmm. And like, you're proud of those because it's your work, the great work that you're doing. And it's just so cool to see you happy and passionate about something that you love. Speaking of passion projects, tell us about Oak. 
Tell us what it's about and what yeah. it's for. Yeah, Oak is kind of this crazy mixture of me being into like all the body hacking stuff, but also into meditation. So what we did that's really kind of crazy different, one, we wanted to just like teach meditation and not have it be prescriptive. There's a lot of great meditation apps out there. If you want to go and you have a fear of flying or anxiety or depression, there's a bunch of them that are headspace and calm. These are great apps that I've used for a long time. Oak is not that. We are very traditional meditation techniques and our goal is to train people and then get them not to do guided meditations. We want to set them free and just have them do a standard meditation timer so they can meditate on their own. You don't really go and see monks sitting in the mountains using apps to meditate. I rarely go to the mountains for my meditation anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the things we want to do. But the second thing we want to do that I think is really interesting is rather than say, we know what's best for people and create a guided meditation, we wanted to use the wisdom of the crowds to create our guided meditation. So we had thousands of people sign up for the beta. And what they did is they were presented with these different surveys if they ended a meditation early or post-meditation, and they would give us feedback on all the different points of the meditation. And so we did hundreds and hundreds of iterations to the meditation in terms of the sound and pacing of the meditation, the words that we were using to describe certain things in the meditation. And so we made all these edits and eventually came out once we got above a certain threshold of, we had them rate it between a one and 10 of how much they enjoyed the meditation. Once we got above an eight, which was you know hundreds of modifications oh, later, then we released the actual meditations out to the world. So basically a guided meditation app where you can come in and do up to 30-minute guided meditations with male or female instructor. And then once you're ready, you can go and meditate on your own with just a good timer. The next thing that we're doing, one, we have breathing exercises that are in there as well. I use those. Those are interesting. Tell us about those. Yeah, so I mean, one of the things that's really powerful is these, um, these types of breathing exercises that the pranayama kind of yogic breathing that we put in there. So if you don't have time to do a meditation, you can just go in there and do a quick breathing exercise and we guide you through all of that and then track like your streak so we can see how many consecutive you've done in a week or in a month. And so that's one piece of it. But the real cool piece going forward and what we're working on now is tying in heart rate data and heart rate variability to your meditations and your breathing exercises. So we want to be the kind of the quantified self version of meditation so that when you come in in this next release, once we get it out there, you'll be able to use your Apple Watch or your Fitbit or others, and we'll show you how your heart rate variability is improving over time as you're using it to meditate. You can imagine like hooking in like all of these different wearables out there and like seeing a little graph of your data over time, kind of like you would a Fitbit app or something like that sure. with sleep data. We want to do that with meditation. Yeah, it's just something that we decide to build and give away for free. There's no paid upgrades or anything like that. It's just Great. like an app for people to enjoy. So it's called Oak. It'll be linked up in the show notes. You also have a podcast, which uh, you should talk about. Yeah, it's, it's called The Kevin Rose Show. And essentially, I interview pretty much anyone that is a top performer. I had like someone on there talking about Bitcoin last week. I had Tim Ferriss on the time before that. And I try and really get at all these different types of body hacks or life hacks and how to improve your life. Really trying to find little tidbits and information that people can use in their own daily life. It's a relatively new podcast. We have 16 episodes out right now. But yeah, it's been a a fun thing to have on some of these top performers and tease out uh, what they're really passionate about, what they're good at. The Kevin Rose Show. Easy to remember because it's your name and that'll be linked up in the show notes as well. Kevin Rose, thanks so much, man. Super fun. Finally. Thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Interesting episode. You know, I had never met him before. This is my first time meeting him. Thanks to you, Jason. We finally connected. Really down-to-earth guy for a guy who's become 
a well-known personality across the entire technical realm. Yeah, he's kind of kept his kind of laid back and low-key personality this whole time, which is very rare for people who have made it so big, but also fallen so far. I think he maybe got some humility out of those failures. Yeah, insight as well. Yeah, keeps him grounded. And now he's got a baby, which is going to keep him really grounded oh, for yeah. quite some time. Nothing like getting pooped on to bring you back <laughs> down to earth. Great big thank you to Kevin Rose. His app is called Oak. Of course, that'll be linked up in the show notes for this episode. It's free to remember. So go ahead and try it. The breathing exercises are amazing. I really like those. And if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Kevin on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. Tweet at me your number one takeaway from Kevin Rose. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram, but I'm not The Art of Charm there. I'm at Jordan Harbinger on Instagram. The other one is not controlled by me, the other Instagram account here for AOC. And don't forget, we have a worksheet for today's episode you can use to make sure that you solidify your understanding of the key takeaways from Kevin Rose. That link to that worksheet is in the show notes at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. I also want to encourage you to join us in the AOC challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. The challenge is about improving your networking skills, improving your connection skills, and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. It's free. A lot of people don't seem to understand. It's free. That's the whole point. That's the idea. It's a fun way to start the ball rolling, get some forward momentum, and apply the things you're learning on the show to your life here every day. Day. We'll also send you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show, which includes some great practical stuff ready to apply right out of the box on reading body language, nonverbal communication, persuasion tactics, the science of attraction, networking and influence strategies, negotiation techniques, and everything else that we teach here on the show and at our live programs at The Art of Charm. It will make you a better networker, it'll make you a better connector, and last but not least, it'll make you a better thinker. That's all at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced, as always, by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. Transcriptions by transcriptionoutsourcing.net. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. If you can think of anyone who might benefit from this episode you've just heard, please pay AOC and producer Jason and myself the highest compliment and pay it forward by sharing this episode with that person. It only takes a moment and great ideas are meant to be shared. So share the show with friends and enemies. Stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them.